You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to uh, Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Ian Leslie, who has written a bunch of fantastic books. Most recent book is called Conflicted. How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. And, and I found this to be kind of a logical outgrowth from your previous book, which is called Curious, The Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depends on It. And there's another wonderful book out there, which is called Born Liars, Why We Can't Live Without Deceit. Welcome, Ian. Thank you, Greg. Nice to be here. Now, I mentioned that I thought conflicted really flowed from from curious, and in, in many ways, it's really about how curiosity about other people's points of view is essential if we are to have productive conversations. But I want to just start with this whole notion of, of curiosity, because I think it's kind of a a prerequisite for the, these productive conversations. And, you know, you kind of explore the why of curiosity, the how of curiosity, the what of curiosity. And, you know, you mentioned that curiosity has sort of had a, um, I don't know, a rocky history and that during many periods of history, curiosity was sort of seen as, as a dangerous thing. And we've gotten warnings about it. So St. Augustine famously was uh, very wary of, of, of a certain type of curiosity, right? We know we have Pandora, right, as a warning, you know, don't open that box. And of course, we all say that curiosity kills the cat. So why is it that curiosity has gotten a bad rap? And I think, you know, why is it in, in today's world, we at least praise curiosity in theory, even if we don't encourage it in practice? So when there's a, a tension between the way that the people who are in charge of the society want everyone to think and, and what people do think or might think, then you see that the value of curiosity becomes negative, right? If you're in a society where you want people to think the same thing, you don't want people to ask questions, right? Because asking questions is at best a waste of energy and at worst, you're undermining the official narrative of the society. There's a great quote from the writer Vladimir Nabokov, he said, curiosity is the purest form of insubordination, right? There is something insubordinate, there's something inherently rebellious about saying, so why is that? And why does it have to be that way? And the reason that church elders in Catholic Europe in the kind of mid middle ages were not keen on curiosity and, and warned against it was that they saw it leading the way to, to heresy one way or the other. You know, you start asking questions and you don't know where it's going to go. You could end up with a reformation. <laughs> um, so um, there was a, you know, there was a, a, a reason for that. And you see that still today in any authoritarian society, people are penalized one way or another for asking questions. You see it even in within organizations, within certain kind of firms, companies, you know, or institutions, there are questions that you're not supposed to ask. And um, that there are cultures which kind of look down on people who ask curious questions and, and those that celebrate them. And so, yeah, I think we have got much better at celebrating the value of curiosity as a society these days, because we've got you know, we're kind of a post-enlightenment society, post-democracy society. We've got more used to the idea that everybody 
should think for themselves and, and have the right to question and reach their own conclusions. But I think underlying that, there is still a kind of unease with it in practice. So I think we kind of have a slightly kind of conflicted relationship with it. Right. So while some, we may still have some authoritarian organizations and authoritarian kind of families, right, where, you know, the paterfamilias might tell their children, do it because I say so, <laughs> and, and discourage curiosity and so forth. But even in, in more, I don't know, we might call it tolerant or, or liberal organizations, families and societies, there's this, I think, belief that curiosity is in many ways a distraction, right? It's kind of, you know, more heat than light. If you want to be efficient, and efficiency is is something we all value to some degree, then you got to focus on the job, right? And if you're spending all your time kind of wondering, you know, why am I doing this? Or, you know, how can I do this better? Then you may wind up failing to accomplish the job. And, and I think you point out that this is legitimate and valid to some degree, that there is a, a trade-off. And one of the things that I liked about both of your books is that you you always focus on the trade-offs and that there are these kind of sweet spots, not only in terms of, you know, what gives rise to to things like curiosity, but also kind of in the application. And so so one of the distinctions you make is between diversive curiosity and, and kind of epistemic curiosity. And I think that, you know, the former is probably more likely to be a distraction or a potentially run into uh, harmful consequences. Could, could you talk a bit about the distinction, right? Are there different types of curiosity? Yeah. So it's been looked at from different perspectives and points of view by psychologists and, and others over the years. And there are kind of lots of different theories of, of how it works. It's it's a slightly kind of confusing topic for psychologists, actually, because as a discipline, you know, they tend to divide between the people who study the brain, neuroscientists or cognitive scientists, and people who study emotions. And the curiosity just sort of cuts across all those divides. It's, it's cognitive and it's emotional at the same time. And it's also a kind of instinct or drive. So the literature on it is, is interestingly kind of all over the place in every sense. But there are two kind of principal types of curiosity. I'm simplifying slightly here, but there are two principal types of curiosity. One of them is this hunger for new information. So you see something that kind of instinctively makes you go, oh, why is that? What is that? I want to know more. You know, that, that happens every time that, that you, uh, you open an email because you, you're interested in the subject heading, right? This is diversive curiosity. So diversive curiosity is this hunger for the, for, for the novel, for the new, for the, ooh, what's that? Let me see. Um, and it kind of gets you off the beaten path. So whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking about, diversive curiosity will kind of pull you off it. And it's an instinct. It kind of, it's um, something you kind of feel almost against your will or, or you know, it's, it's involuntary. This would be sort of uh, involving the dopamine reward circuit, right? This is kind of like, oh, wow, look at that. So for people who are just continuously scrolling on their on their iPhone looking for like the next uh, like video, right? That would be, it's a form of curiosity, yeah, yeah. right? So, so the internet, social media in particular, they're, they're great kind of machines for stimulating diversive curiosity. They're constantly trying to drag your attention over here by making you curious, right? And the way they do that is by giving you a little bit of information, but not all of it. Right. So you'll, so you'll see a you'll see a header that will say something like, "The internet blows up over yeah. X," and then you know, you're like, "What is it?" And then yeah. you want to click. So Taylor on it, right? Swift went to a party, and you'll never guess what happened next. Right. So so you you get a little bit of information, but not all the information. 
And that opens up, psychologists sometimes, sometimes call it a curiosity gap or an information gap, right? And in that gap is where your diversive curiosity takes you. You go charging into that gap, right? So, so you don't, you're not curious about things you don't know anything about. This is a kind of a deceptively simple but powerful principle, right? You need a bit of information, in order, but, but to the extent where you get curious. So if you've got no information, you're not curious about it. If you've got all the information about a topic, you're not curious about it. If you've got some of the information, but you know you don't have all of it, you go, oh, I need to know. So, so that's how diversive curiosity works. Now, if all curiosity worked that way, then curiosity, I would not be writing a book saying, you know, you need to cultivate your curiosity because you wouldn't need to cultivate it, it would just happen. And also it wouldn't be that fulfilling. You're just kind of constantly clicking or shine, you know, chasing after the shiny new thing and never really kind of settling on anything. If we think about the people that we admire, uh, that have achieved lots that we, we think of as deeply curious people, you know, great scientists, great innovators, great artists, they're, they're not just stimulate, you know, they're not just having their diversive curiosity stimulated. They are building knowledge about particular field or, or particular fields um, over time. And that kind of deeper, long-lasting curiosity, more long-lasting curiosity is epistemic curiosity. It's about building knowledge over time, right? And that requires actual effort and concentration and focus. It's not involuntary. It doesn't just happen to you. It's something you have to decide to do. You say, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to learn more. I mean, perhaps you're doing it because you love learning more. It's not like, you know, it has to be a chore, but, but whatever it takes, it, it is something that requires effort and application and focus. So, so epistemic curiosity is really what happens when diversity of curiosity grows up, right? If it's allowed to grow up, it's like, okay, diversity, you've stimulated my interest with this diversity curiosity, but now can I translate that into epistemic curiosity where I'm actually starting to build out my knowledge around that area? Yeah, it's interesting you, you dig into this idea of effort because on the one hand, the effort required for epistemic curiosity, you know, discourages some people from digging into it, right? Because people are essentially effort conservation machines. But you also mentioned that kind of the more effort you apply, kind of the more satisfying the curiosity. And you, you highlight how Google kind of makes it, you know, a lot easier to obtain a fact. And so we, we kind of skip over the part of, about trying to figure it out ourselves. Me, I, I always like to try to figure it out first and then, you know, last resort, go to, go to Google, right? And that seems kind of inefficient when you can get the answer kind of very quickly. Why would anybody expend this unnecessary effort? But I think for epistemically curious people, they, they view this process of trying to figure things out or, you know, what you call puzzles as almost like a sport or as a um, pleasurable activity. How much do, do we need to construct for ourselves a path to knowledge that has an optimal amount of effort? How do we manage that effort? And what do we do about people who don't find the joy, <laughs> you know, in the effort piece? Well, I mean, those are two big questions. You know, it's the reason I wrote the book, really, or at least the argument that the book makes, the kind of mission of, of the book, if you like, is to cultivate your epistemic curiosity, recognize its value. Because actually, you don't need to cultivate it after a certain stage. You know, we're born curious, go into this in some length in the book, you know, curiosity in childhood. We, we kind of have this biological engine of curiosity, which we've evolved because 
we are cultural creatures. We need to learn out. We need to, you know, the way we survive is not just by surviving in our biological niches, but in our cultural niche. We, not, we need to work out what these adults are up to and why they talk this way and why they behave this way in order to, to, to get on in the world. Now, once we've done that, our curiosity naturally wanes, right? So as we get become older children and then adults, we kind of figure out how to be in this world. You know, perhaps in, as adults, you know, we get the credentials we need in order to, to get a job and then we learn how to do our job. And then, oh, well, you know, there's no point in me kind of really being curious anymore because I kind of figured out how, how this machine works and it's, it's working quite fine. I think that's the danger, right? Because actually you do need curiosity much more than you realize perhaps. And, and you do need to put the everything over time. It's not just going to happen to you. It's not just a gift that, that keeps on giving. Epistemic curiosity is something you have to cultivate. How you do that, I mean, that's kind of lots of stuff to say about that, but I'll just say one or two things. One of them is choose one or two subjects. It might be work-related, it might be completely not work-related or, or both, where you already kind of know a bit more than the average person. And then really go deep on those, as deep as you can. Sort of secret of, of happiness, as 18th century aristocrat said, is to know one or two things very well and know a little about everything else. Kind of put it a little bit more elegantly than that. But I think that's it. Well, this is the fox hog, right? Did yes, you, yes, it's sort of, I, yeah. I was amazed. I couldn't believe that it took me this long to actually hear this word fox hog. <laughs> you know, I think some people in the business literature refer to it as kind of a T-shaped individual, right? But the fox hog term, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that and I'm going to use that a lot going forward. Yeah, so, so there's it. the kind of um, story of the hedgehog and, and the fox. And the idea is that the fox knows many different ways to survive. And the hedgehog knows just one, right? You put the spikes out when, when you're under attack and that's all you need to know. And that's just, this is sometimes used as a kind of a lens through which to view different historical figures, different politicians. Is, is, are they a hedgehog or are they a fox? You know, are they somebody who's very clever and knows lots of stuff? Or is it just somebody who focuses on one thing and is really good at it? I so say Reagan versus would be a hedgehog, Clinton would be a fox, you know, you get the idea. Now, I use it in the book to, in a slightly different sense, which is say, you need to be a fox hawk in the sense that you need to know really deeply about one or two things. And then you need to know a little about everything else. So you understand how everything connects and everything joins up. And that's the kind of the structure of your own knowledge that you should be you should be looking for well one of the points that you make is this idea that kind of knowledge feeds curiosity in other words the more as you start acquiring knowledge it makes you more curious about the edges right and acquiring additional knowledge in other words it's it's not i think a lot of people have this view that okay you, you're curious you want to know something and then once you know it then that gap has been closed and the desire has been satisfied the hunger has been eliminated and then you revert back to, to baseline and i think you're making this point that knowledge is kind of the the fertilizer for curiosity and that, that has a that view has very different implications for you know how you structure education right yeah so th there's a kind of naive view of curiosity that you often hear you hear it from kind of tech people who do ted talks about curiosity and, and education which is unfortunately is a kind of quite a popular view of education which i think is kind of completely misguided and, it, and it's something like this you don't need to fill kids heads with knowledge with facts teaching shouldn't be about imparting information 
two children, you should just let the children's curiosity run free, particularly now they have access to the internet. They don't actually need to imbibe information and they certainly don't need you to, to give it to them. They'll work anything out they need for themselves. Now, this is just sort of misguided for, for a few different reasons, but one of them is it's fundamentally misunderstands the nature of curiosity. Knowledge does not crowd curiosity out. Knowledge is a stimulus for curiosity and for creativity. If you think back to what I was saying about the information gap, you know, we're not really curious about things we don't know anything about. We become curious when we have some knowledge about something, we realize we don't have it all. So knowledge is really kind of, kind of fuels curiosity. The more I, you know, if I know a little bit about the French Revolution, I'm going to be a lot more curious about it than if it's just meaningless to me, right? Tell me a story about the French Revolution. Give me some interesting facts or tell me something dramatic about it. And I'll go, oh, really? I want to know more. Give me a bit more information in the right way. And suddenly I want to know more. And then it'll kind of keep on. So you know who understands this really well, this principle? is storytellers. So storytellers know instinctively that the way to, to create interest and, and drama and intrigue and curiosity in the reader or the watcher, the viewer, is to give them a little bit of information, but not too much. So, so if you're watching or you're reading the opening of a novel, or you're watching the opening half an hour of a, a, of a movie, they're, they're, giving you, they're trying to give you just the right amount of information leave you kind of confused and mystified and after a few minutes and you'd be, well, I don't want to watch this anymore. I just, just don't understand what's going on. Letting you know how this is all going to unfold and you'd be, oh, I'm not interested in this. Giving you a little bit of information about the relationships or the story and then saying, okay, but now you want to know this. And that's the way education works is you're kind of giving kids knowledge, which stimulates them to learn, to learn more knowledge, right? So I think the idea that you just say, hey, kids, you don't need knowledge. You don't need facts. You don't need information. You just go out there and learn whatever you want to do. It's just actually a recipe for curiosity and, and, and essentially for sort of giving up. So you have to kind of create this flow, I guess, right? This ladder, which is not too difficult and not too easy. I think you, you had some fascinating stuff in there about how early this kicks in, right? And how babies, you know, we all know that if a baby is exposed to more words as, as a baby, that leads to changes in how they communicate and so forth later in life. But this, this thing, this NFC, right? This need for cognition, this is not something which is an inherent attribute, but is something that can be shaped by the caregiver interactions. Can, can you talk a bit about that? I, f I found that absolutely fascinating. The scientists who, who, who study this will, will actually kind of study what's happening to, to curiosity when in babies and then, and then in older children. You'll see that, that even at the kind of a very young age, babies will kind of respond to the behavior of their caregiver. So if their mom or dad is kind of, for instance, just sort of pointing to things, then the baby will point to things more, you know, and pointing to things is a way of asking a question before you can verbalize it. And then there are kind of studies of, of households where the, the children kind of uh, grow up curious or, or incurious. In Again, I'm kind of simplifying here. And one of the kind of interesting insights from that was that the households where, where, the, where the children were really curious were not just the ones where the parents were answering their children's questions, but the ones where the, the parents were asking questions of the children, right? So, so the kid will ask a question and, and the adult won't just go, oh, well, the answer is the Amazon River. 
they'll say, oh, I don't know. I think it's this, but what do you think? And, you know, how would we work it out? What would we need to know? And, and they're kind of like, help them, but, but not sometimes giving somebody the answer is a way of kind of shutting down their curiosity, right? And acknowledging that perhaps, you know, you don't know, you're not sure, how would we work this out is actually a better way to, to manage that and, and to cultivate the, the child's curiosity. Right. I think you mentioned that a child may ask 40,000, you know, whys before they're five years old. I know with my mother, I would never get shut down, but my mother would often kind of make stuff up just to make me more, even more curious. She just tell me all sorts of tall tales so that I would, I think, wait, that, that, that doesn't make sense. I need to, I need to dig into this a little further. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of education, you mentioned in the book that on the one hand, while people who have this need for cognition, this curiosity are going to be increasingly in demand, we, we seem to be funneling people more into highly specialized roles, right? So I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about kind of specialists versus versus generalists. And, and it seems like, you know, specialists are often rewarded more in, in certain disciplines. And so there's excess demand for more generalists. Would you say that this move towards kind of skill-based education where we can kind of track the, the competencies and so forth is, is a development that's a little bit worrisome because curiosity is not a skill. It is easily measured, I guess, in the same way that being able to code, right? The best coders, the best lawyers, these are people who aren't necessarily the ones who have the most testable knowledge, but the ones that have this you know, hunger for, for cognition and for figuring things out. Do we need to have a good solid, you know, metric for this capability before we can start pushing it more in the educational well, context? Well, you know, perhaps we do, but we don't have one. And the, the problem is, is that because we don't have one, people don't know how to value it properly, right? We're just not very good at valuing things that we can't measure increasingly. And we tend to assume that the things we can measure are the, the important things. And that the things we can't measure are, must be unimportant, right? Which is just just doesn't, doesn't make sense, but that's kind of the, the way we operate a lot of the time, in, particularly in the business world and in, in the academic world as well. So, yeah, I do think that, that specialization, obviously there are huge benefits to it. It's, specialization is one of the kind of drivers of economic growth, right? And, but yeah, if you take this too far and everybody's rewarded for being an increasingly kind of deep specialist in one point, and you don't value the kind of connections that people can make across different disciplines, different areas of knowledge, then yeah, you're, you're really kind of, um, you've got a problem, this is not just from a curiosity point of view, but from a creativity point of view. So one of the kind of valuable things about curiosity is that it takes you away from your specialization as well as kind of driving you deeper into it, right? So it should operate at both levels at once, kind of vertically and, and laterally. Often you, you'll find the most successful people in their field are, are the people who have a bit more breadth as well as depth. Obvious example is Steve Jobs in terms of, you know, innovation or, or, or business, or however you want to situate him. But he was somebody who brought together technical expertise. You know, he wasn't the the great technologist of, of, of Apple, but he had you know, sufficient technical expertise to keep up with Steve Wozniak. And he brought that together with humanities. You know, he's very interested in, in literature and, and, and art, the counterculture and uh, music. And, you know, he did a calligraphy course when he was a year, just because he was interested in calligraphy and, and later made sure that the Mac was installed with proper fonts, which is why we now have fonts on, you know, Microsoft Word and, you know, everyone has classical fonts on, on their computers, all because he just decided to follow his curiosity at university. 
And so, you know, part of the point here is that you don't actually know what's going to be valuable to whatever you're doing, that you can you can take insights and, and bits of knowledge and facts from completely different fields that you've acquired just because you're interested in them can suddenly become valuable five, 10, 20 years down the line to the, your specialized subject in a way that you can't really predict and you shouldn't really try to. So I think th there are both kind of straightforward reasons to have some breadth, which is, you know, you're going to be better at collaborating with other people from different fields if you know a little bit about what they do. And, and workplaces increasingly run on, on collaborative, multidisciplinary teams. And then there is kind of a less straightforward, just, a, but just as valuable point, which is, yeah, sometimes you, you're going to connect different bits of knowledge from different fields and create something new, right? Which is the kind of essence of, of creativity. Well, you mentioned serendipity, and you say that maybe the 18th century was the uh, high point of serendipity, maybe. I mean, I remember when I was younger, spending an enormous amount of time in bookstores, and you mentioned bookstores. I spent an enormous amount of time in in the library. You know, this was an, an environment where you, you would just kind of stumble on something, and a lot of people say that because we're not spending time in that environment, but rather in the internet environment, you would think that that environment would actually facilitate more serendipity, but some people will say that, you know, because of algorithms and because of, you know, echo chambers, that, you know, you're going to get less serendipity. You kind of just double down and descend through the rabbit hole. And these, these random encounters, I think a lot of the tech companies are trying to figure out how can you design an algorithm for, you know, for, for serendipity. Uh, and I've got students who are trying to create, you know, startups that would facilitate kind of more serendipity within kind of the work environment so that, you know, when you go to a, a meetup or you go to a, a networking event, you don't just kind of see the same people you know, over and over again, but you have these random encounters. What's the relationship between you know, serendipity and curiosity. How can we design an environment or a life for ourselves with kind of the optimal amount of serendipity? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I mean, it's just been, <laughs> right. a difficult question. Um, serendipity is it's about being prepared to be interested in what comes your way by accident as much as it is putting yourself in the place where, you know, accidents might happen. And, and again, we come back to this question of, of breadth and kind of having a wide breadth of knowledge, the wider, you know, the wider you cast your net effectively, and the more likely you are to pick up interesting, unexpected um, points of view and, and, and insights and so on. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, that quote from Louis Pasteur, which is chance favors the prepared mind. You know, so scientific serendipity is about being being ready to spot when something is interesting, not just being being there when something interesting happens. You might not notice it unless your mind is already prepared for it. And and so cultivating a kind of broad and, and rich range of interests means you're going to get more serendipity, more kind of good luck in that sense is going to come your way. Well, I'd also be interested in hearing you, you talk a bit about the role of kind of anxiety and also insecurity and how those things can kind of shut down creativity, right? So, you know, if you're in a fight or flight mode, and, and this is not just for kind of curiosity about the world, but it's also, I think, about this third type of curiosity that you mentioned, which is kind of empathic curiosity, right? Curiosity about others, not just curiosity about the world, but curiosity about the, uh, you know, the human world and, and others. How does stress, anxiety, and so forth affect our, our curiosity? 
Bradley. The two great killers of curiosity are kind of at opposite ends of a spectrum of our fear and complacency. You can think about this in terms of a workplace, right? If, if you're in a workplace where everybody is very, very anxious about how, how well things are going, everybody's very insecure about the company and about their own position, then they are likely to be less curious, right? They're just likely to spend less time kind of chasing down their own rabbit holes and trying to work on their own projects. They're also less likely to ask questions of, of others. Nobody wants to be seen to be, you know, anything less than all-knowing and highly competent. So we kind of stop asking questions. And, and this kind of fear of the boss and fear of, of upsetting the boss. So fear kind of shuts down. Now, let's look at the opposite kind of company almost where... where you know, everything's going incredibly well. <laughs> They're making tons of money. Um, they've been doing it the same way for 20 years. It all works fine. Then there, there, there's also danger that that company will become very incurious. And then before they know it, they'll be disrupted by a, a smaller, hungrier company that's, that's more curious about consumers and about how technology is changing and so on. And suddenly, you know, they eat their lunch. So they're kind of like these two two opposite poles. And so you're, you're trying to create, again, as you say, you know, it's a trade-off. You're, you're trying to create this space in the middle where people are secure enough to ask questions, but also kind of nervous enough not to kind of spend all their time asking aimless questions. Like, you know, there should become some sort of like goal. Um, there should be some sort of limit on, on what you're doing, but you're trying to like channel people towards this kind of productive curiosity. So, I mean, then it's possible, right? Because we talk about trade-offs. It's possible to be too curious. I mean, I, I know that when I was, I, I never finished my PhD in part because I couldn't, you know, I kept switching disciplines and, and my advisor was like, you know, you got to stop reading. <laughs> if you're ever going to mount anything, you got to stop reading, right? Curiosity can, if not kill the cat, it can certainly kind of derail your uh, your ability to kind of, achieve your goals, right? I mean, do we need sort of a, a, a counterpart book called Persistence, which is the, the, the guide to anti-curiosity? Are there people that are in danger of having too much curiosity as much as there are people who are in danger of having too little? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you have to have some, it has to have some relationship to the goals that you're pursuing in your life, right? It's a kind of indirectly. It's a good question because it's kind of, there isn't a clear answer to it. If we were only pursuing knowledge that was meeting goals directly, that wouldn't be really be pursuing curiosity, right? That would just be kind of following our orders or our, in, even our internal orders. So there is inherently something kind of off the beaten path about curiosity. It's kind of acquiring knowledge and insights that you don't necessarily need to know. But again, if you go all the way off the beaten path and you just lose sight of the path altogether, um, that you can find yourself lost and aimless and, and, and wandering. So, yeah, I, I think you, that that's a, just a balance to strike, really. You're, you're, you're trying to go off the beaten path, but, but without losing sight of it and returning to it now and again. And that's the kind of secret of a, a happy, kind of productive, curious life. In the book Conflicted, you're really talking about how disagreement can be a source of, of knowledge and wisdom and that you know, in fact, disagreement is much more likely to promote knowledge than agreement, right? I mean, if, I think you quote William Wrigley, who said, you know, if I've got two people in the room who agree, then you know, one of them is unnecessary. Why is it that people are 
afraid of disagreement or why is it that they are fearful of or uh, aversive to disagreement? It's a great question because it goes actually back to the root of the reason we were talking about curiosity being undervalued, right? And so if you're, if you're in a society where everybody is expected to agree with one another, right? Which is actually most societies up until the last few hundred years, right? So the idea that we all kind of sit around and have different points of view and we hash it, you know, we bash things out relatively new and, you know, it's an experiment. <laughs> the jury's still out on, on, on this one. Um, I like it this way, but, uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so, so for most of human history, we've been in societies where you're kind of expected to, to believe the same things as, as everyone else. That means there, there is a, a kind of negative value to curiosity. Um, and it also means there is a negative value to disagreement, to open disagreement. Um, because why would you be, you know, disagreeing with people and arguing with people? You, you just kind of take your opinions from, from authority and that's all you need to do and get on with your life. Um, and you can then take that right back to the roots of human societies. You know, if somebody was, we didn't really disagree with each other. We, we just either kind of got along with each other or, or if someone had a different point of view, they would just make a threat and then you had to respond to the threat. And today when they do neuroscience experiments, fMRI experiments, and they put people in scanners and they kind of show them disagreeable statements or statements that disagree with a person's stated points of view, the bits of that on our brain light up are the same ones that are light up when they're being attacked by a bear. We still have this deep-rooted sense that when someone disagrees with us, what they really want to do is kill us or, you know, at least kind of bash us around the head with a club. Um, and it's very hard for us to get over that. And no matter how kind of carefully we say, we're going to disagree openly here, that's totally fine. And when somebody comes at you and says, no, no, no I don't agree. You always get that sense that, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit because of that kind of evolutionary root. So I think we find it instinctively hard, instinctively aversive, um, but a little like what, you know, in the sense that we find curiosity hard because it takes up energy that we're trying to conserve. Disagreement is, is hard, but it pays off you know, the effort of engaging in it and, and overcoming your anxiety pays off in big ways, it essentially makes you smarter um, and, and, and more creative and actually improves your relationships, you know, even when you think you're, you're damaging them. Yeah, the mission of this book is just to say, you know, let's really get better at curiosity and disagreement because nobody comes along and says, disagreement is hard. You've got to learn how to do it well. We're just expected to know how to do it. And I don't think we're very good at it. And it's something that we have to give a bit more thought to if we're going to disagree well. Well, you, you point out that kind of marriages, the most successful marriages are ones that have this kind of disagreement sweet spot where they have conflict, they have disagreement, they have knockdown conversations. And you talk also about how people who are raised in households that have, you know, disagreement turn out to be folks who can manage, interact with other people, you know, more successfully and so forth. So it's not just that people don't like disagreement, but it's kind of like disagreement has a bad, bad rap for relationships. I personally, if, you know, I can't think of any more pleasurable activity than to go on a hike with some good friends and get into it right? and start. And, and I, you know, if we do, if we do agree, I manufacture disagreement just to kind of keep things interesting. Tell us a bit about that. Why does disagreement actually strengthen relationships? And does it have to be done 
in a certain way. Obviously, if people come to blows, that's not going to be very good for Yeah, it definitely has to be done in a certain way. We can talk about that. I mean, I, there's quite a few things to say about that. And that's part of, a big part of the book is, is about how to do it right. But, but to answer your first question, which is, why is it important? Why is it good for relationships? Even though in the moment, it feels like it's bad for the relationship. That's why, you know, one of the reasons we get anxious, we think, oh my God, I'm going to damage my relationship with this person. Or, um, and so we kind of shy away from it, which is a mistake most of the time. But actually, it's the other way around. There's a really fascinating line of research from psychologists who study couples. And for a long time in that field, there was a kind of base assumption, which was, the couples that argue a lot uh, are, are the ones that are going to split up because they've kind of been looking at couples in hindsight and say, well, these couples kind of argued a lot and they split up, therefore. But actually, it doesn't work like that. The, the, more recently, they've been changing their minds. They've been doing better experiments. Well, one of the things they do is they'll get couples into a room and they'll put a camera in the room and then they'll walk out and, and, and they'll say, can you argue about something that you argue about in your marriage? Like what a contentious issue in your marriage, your partnership, whatever it is. We all have them, right? Whether it's, you know, who's, who's spending too much money or who's drinking too much or who's doing their share of the housework, whatever it is. And the couples really get into it <laughs> immediately. <laughs> or at least they, they behave quite naturally. They don't worry about the camera too much. And then um, the psychologists will then kind of measure who is quickest, which couples were quickest to rise to argument, how vigorously they engaged in argument and so on. And then they track them. They track how this couple's doing over the next six months, two years, five years. So these are longitudinal studies. And they found that the couples who were quicker to rise to argument and were more vigorous in their arguments were actually the ones who were more likely to stay together, more likely to be fulfilled, and more likely to have solved some of the problems that, that they were arguing about. They're not bickering, right? They're actually arguing. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's yeah. a difference, right? Between pointless bickering and actually constructive conversations, yes. right? Although, one of the things I find fascinating about it is that they are hot arguments, though. They're not sitting around having kind of Socratic discussions about what's going on here. They're getting into it, right? And they're, they're having a bit of a body, right? So it's not bickering in the sense that it's not about nothing. They're, they're arguing about the issue, but it is also quite emotional. And when I talked to one of the psychologists that, that runs these experiments, I said, so, so what, what, why do these, what, what is working here? What, what is the function of, of these arguments in, in a couple's relationship? And she said, look, conflict is information. So, so in, a, in a conflict, particularly if it's heated, you're actually learning about the other person, or you should be if you're, you're kind of paying attention, right? You're learning about what they really care about, uh, what they really think. Like once the veil of politeness, which exists even in intimate relationships, drops, or, or once the kind of veil of passivity drops, you know, we don't often, we often just avoid these things if we can. When you actually have the row and you have it out, phrase have it out is so sort of suggestive you know you're, you're seeing the inside of that person's mind and, the, and that person's heart and emotion is part of that right so if it's too kind of rational you might you might not see that and that ultimately brings you closer that's how you, and that's because as a couple you know you, you're both evolving you think you know each other really well but under the surface each of you is changing and moving and now and again you need an argument to kind of update your your model of of your partner the couples that, that are good at doing that without really tearing a strip of each out of each other, right? It's being nasty to each other, being unpleasant to each other. That's never good, right? Nobody's kind of advising that. But having a kind of heated argument, that's 
that's good. So it's actually a bad idea to suppress one's emotions during these yeah. conversations. I mean, I've always tried to work hard on that and focus on the matter at hand. And, and this enrages and frustrates the people I'm, I'm conversing with, even though I, I'm thinking that this is the way to move the, the ball down the field, so to speak. And you talk about how, you know, oftentimes the arguments are not about what they seem to be about. And, and this is not just in marital relationships, but you also talk about in hostage negotiations and other kinds of heated conversations. The conversations are almost never about thing that is being expressed, but there's, you know, subtexts and contexts and, and so forth. And the good conversationalists are the ones that are very, very attuned to that. But is, is there some benefit to establishing kind of rules that would make context less relevant? I, I Let me just, I mean, you put it very well. I'm going to elaborate a little bit on what you just said, which is, and because it's good to be aware of this, this kind of basic truth, which is in any conversation that there are two levels of communication going on. There is what you just called the matter at hand, right? Which is shorthand for that is the content level of, of the conversation. And then there is the, the relationship level, which is unspoken most of the time. It's kind of, it's subterranean. It consists of kind of tone of voice and body language and choice of words, but it's not directly expressed. And that, that relationship level is about what you think about me, what I think about you. Am I, do you respect me? Do you, do you like me? Are you, and often because two people or more haven't settled that relationship level, the, the content level kind of breaks down. Because at least one of the, the people is unhappy with the respect or whatever it is that they're getting from the other person. And without necessarily saying it directly, they'll kind of show that dissatisfaction in how they behave. Perhaps unsurprisingly, because it conforms to stereotype. When they, but when they study this, they find that females tend to be more attuned to that relationship level than males are. And so often, you, you know, you'll find in, in uh, an argument between a man and a woman, the woman is kind of concentrating on how she feels about the, the relationship that is being expressed in that conversation. And the man is thinking, well, why can't she just talk about the thing that we're meant to be talking? Why is she being so rational and, and not kind of noticing the relationship signals at all? What, this really kind of funny kind of postscript to this, which is that when they, there's variation in the, uh, these experiments and they pay the man to pick up on relationship signals. <laughs> so she gave him a financial incentive to say, right, can you tell me what's going on here? How is she feeling? And they can do it. Like, so it's not like, you know, that cliche that, oh, men just aren't wired for it. You know, men just aren't emotionally wired. No, that's nonsense. Men are, they just don't have as much incentive because they've culturally, you know, kind of dominant. <laughs> they don't feel like they have to. Um, so they just haven't developed that habit. And, and often you find that people who are, on the wrong side of a power imbalance in society, just generally in society, are more attuned to those relationship signals than the people who aren't. So they're kind of better at, at reading people. And, and so, yeah, I, I, so I just think bearing those, those two levels in mind is just good in, in any kind of conversation. Have we settled that relationship level? Because if we haven't, that's probably why the content level isn't going so well. Is there value in setting rules? Yeah, absolutely. So. The value, one way of expressing the value of a good organizational culture 
in a workplace within, within a couple, a couple has their own culture, right? I just, the culture is just kind of word for the way the habits of behavior and, and, and thought and amongst a group of people, a really good culture takes a lot of that relationship stuff out. It, it kind of settles that relationship level. If you're in a good culture where every, it's, you know, everybody's expected to disagree openly. Therefore, it's not a sign of disrespect. It's not a sign of like, oh, I'm about to get your job or I don't like you or I think you're rubbish. It's just the way we do things here. Then that immediately kind of takes that relationship tension off the table. And that is the value of a good culture for, from a kind of productive conflict point of view. Because then you can really get into the content, the matter at hand, and, and really have a productive, intelligent, insight-generating uh, disagreement. Right. So in the, in the university programs that I'm associated with, what we try to do is we try to tell everybody that is part of that program, you know, hey, look, you're part of this community. You know, everybody here is trustworthy. Everybody here has your back. And so once that ground rule is established, then now you, you should be free to, you know, disagree without worrying about threat. I found it, it's actually a little bit harder now. I think, you know, especially during COVID, I found it, and maybe it's just because of the general anxiety level, but it, it, it felt like my students were less capable of engaging in these productive disagreements and they would, you know, retreat from the disagreements in person, maybe drive those disagreements online where they could be less, um, you know, difficult. And, and it took kind of a lot longer to, you know, get people to that place where they felt secure in the relationship and could have the, this productive disagreement. So how do you, I mean, I, I never like to talk about trends based on anecdotes, but is there, I think in, in the culture, in organizations, um, maybe is this more challenging? We, there are companies like Intel that talk about constructive disagreement, right? But I find that in a lot of companies now, disagreement is kind of pushed on, under the rug simply because th there's this this lack of trust in, in the community. I think that's undoubtedly true, right? And, and it's partly because we're seeing a lot of toxic, unpleasant arguments play out in public on social media, on TV, in our politics. And, and so if we were already a little bit uncomfortable with disagreement. Now, more than ever, we see that and we go, oh, no, I don't want any part of that. The, the problem with, a, with American society or British society is actually not that there's way too much disagreement. It's, it's, there's too little of it because we see the kind of the worst of it and it's made very public and it's kind of amplified and the rest of us go, oh, gosh, I don't want to go there. That's one reason. The second reason is we have put a, quite rightly, put a high value on diverse groups from people from different backgrounds, right? So, so that means that you, you, you're bringing people together with different beliefs, different kind of, um, yeah, different kind of outlooks on the world. And you're expecting them to, to disagree. It's actually harder for everyone, because everyone, you know, most people anyway, are pretty kind of nervous about upsetting or offending other people. And when you're in a more diverse group, that's more likely to, people are more likely to be kind of a little bit backwards and coming forwards when they have a point of view or a, a difference of view. And I think that's a great shame, right? <laughs> Having a more diverse group around a table, well, you know, it's good from a social justice point of view, you would do it anyway, but there should be cognitive benefits to it too, right? There should be a benefit of, of having people with different backgrounds and perspectives around a table, which is you bring all those perspectives together and you create something is much more vibrant and much more insightful and much more interesting than it would be otherwise. And I think it's a great shame if we just 
and have all these people around the table and they're all different and they all just nod along with each other. You're not unlocking the benefits of diversity when you do that. So I, I think kind of doing what you've just been talking about and, and the few different ways to do it, but getting people more comfortable with disagreement, really helping them get over their anxiety about it and saying, this is fine. In, in this culture that we're creating here around this table in this classroom, whatever it is, in this workplace, in, in, in this culture, we expect and we want disagreement. It's not a sign of disrespect. It's the opposite. When we disagree with each other, we're actually respecting the other's point of view because we, we want to hear their disagreement with us and we want to have them out. That's how we make each other smarter. I think it is a, a real problem, but that's partly why I, I wanted to write the book. You talk about this concept of kind of the division of epistemic labor, and I like this a lot. We know in kind of adversarial legal system, if you have someone who's taken the point of view of the prosecutor and the other one who's taken the point of view of the, the defense attorney, we think that you're more likely to get the max amount of information out on the table and arrive at a better decision than if you have a single person who is tasked with you know figuring both sides out. And you say that this is the the power of biased thinking. So we in business school, we spend a lot of time trying to de-bias people or unbiased people, but maybe what we should be doing is curating a Petri dish of biased people and then kind of let them have at it in a curated environment. Do we spend too much time thinking about de-biasing people? I mean, is this a fool's errand? Should we you know, be focused more on constructing encounters that will, will enable the emergence of Truth yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. I mean, wait, to, to be clear, we're not talking about um, prejudice or we're kind of in the bigoted sense here. We, we, we're talking about biases like confirmation bias, biases towards or a, a, a particular perspective, clinging to your particular argument point of view. Now, yeah, so, so when we tend to think of all those kinds of bias as irrational things that, you know, we should iron out and flaws to be got rid of. But I think we should show a little respect for evolution here. You know, there might be a reason that we have evolved that way. And what one very kind of plausible theory of why we have these biases is that it works better in a group situation where people have different points of view. You know, think about it. If you're in a group situation, you, you, you get a kind of debate going and everybody lets go of their point of view almost immediately because they hear one that they think is better or might be slightly better then you wouldn't really be interrogating that topic for very long. And therefore, you wouldn't be unlocking the, the benefits of, of the disagreement. If people's points of view are a bit more sticky than that, if they're a bit less willing to back down, and actually if they're motivated, perhaps for ego reasons, a little bit of ego, perhaps a little bit of my side bias, whatever, but whatever, they are actually motivated to think of more and better reasons for their point of view and to knock down the reasons from the other side, to point out the weaknesses in their, their arguments, then actually you can have a really much richer and more productive disagreement. Now, we talk about trade-offs all the way through this discussion. People stick too hard to their point of view and they're completely inflexible and they don't listen to the other side. Obviously, that's a bad thing too. But there is a happy median here where people have, are motivated to, to make the best case possible and to point out the flaws in the other side then actually you're going to get rid of a lot of bad arguments a lot more quickly than you would do otherwise. And you're going to get much closer to the truth and explore more possible areas for the truth than, than, than you would otherwise. And I think in that trade-off discussion, you don't use the term, but I think you're kind of implying you know, this idea of 
strong opinions, you know, weekly yeah. held, which we hear about a lot in the business world, right? You know, don't give yeah. up too easily, but don't refuse to give up right, your, your point of view. And I think this idea of groupthink, we see it sometimes emerge even in, in scientific communities. Oh, yeah. you, you referenced the orthodoxy around, around sugar, right? In, the, in low fat diets and so forth. A lot of people were concerned that the debate around COVID interventions and stuff had been a little bit too inhospitable to robust discussion. Even in scientific communities, you can see this groupthink emerge. But I want to uh, sort of wrap up by asking you, you say that negotiating with terrorists is not that different from dealing with teenagers. Yep. <laughs> and uh, that was my, my favorite quote, I think, of the whole whole book. But that in order to really learn from disagreement, you have to put yourself where the other person's at, so to speak, right? You have to really learn to to listen and, and inhabit their, their point of view. And, and this takes us back to curiosity, right? And it takes us back to that empathic curiosity that you, you mentioned in the curiosity book. So if curiosity is a discipline and a skill and productive disagreement is a discipline and a skill, is empathic curiosity a, a skill that we can develop? And does it develop from only from interaction with humans or can it develop from interaction, say, with, with literature? I think it can develop in both ways. Literature, novels in particular, are, are, are kind of great channels into other consciousness is I can't actually say that word, but into other people's consciousness. The great value of the novel is that they're very kind of um, interior. Not not all of them, but that's the kind of great kind of value of the form is you're kind of seeing inside other people's minds. You're getting a very rich picture of it. And it's no coincidence that the form arose during a period of mass kind of urbanization um, where lots of different people are, and, and being thrown together from, from different places. And suddenly it was like, wow, there's all these kind of different types of people around me. And, and, and the, the novel kind of helps kind of bridge those gaps and, and art and literature still does that. But yeah, empathic curiosity is curiosity about the thoughts and the feelings of, of other people. And I do find it's kind of the antidote to kind of really unpleasant, bad conflicts. If you are disagreeing with somebody, it, it, let's say this is the person is really a, um, got a point of view you know you're never going to agree with, right? And they just said something that you just, you never going to, what's the point of arguing with them? Well, I think when you're in that situation, you can at least say to yourself, well, I can be interested in how they arrived at that point of view. I'm not going to try and argue them out of it. It's this pointless kind of, you know, contest. But I can be interested in, in how they got there. And in finding out about how they got there, I will be a little bit more aware of my own views. I'll also be a little bit better at arguing my case, actually, because, you know, you, you understand the other side's case. The better you understand that, the better you are at putting your own case. I think there's a kind of inherent sort of dichotomy between curiosity and judgment. We can judge people and we just instantly kind of like, well, that person's bad or that person's stupid. Therefore, I don't have to be curious about them or about what they're saying. And, or you can be curious about them going, why do they think that? And you have to kind of suspend judgment in order to do that. Um, there's, some, you know, there's nothing wrong with judging people. Sometimes that's what, what you have to do. But just recognize that you're choosing one or the other. And that sometimes it's good to kind of push yourself 
back towards curiosity rather than just going straight to judgment, which is what we do a lot of the time, if only, as you said right at the beginning of this conversation, to conserve energy, because we're all trying to conserve our, our mental energy all the time, but sometimes that's uh, not actually helpful for our mental development. Well, Ian, definitely you inspired me to avoid conserving my energy and to read your work. It's really fantastic. This book, uh, Conflicted, it's really a, a great guide to interacting with other people and uh, improving your relationships with the folks at work and at home. And maybe if you're a leader, creating an environment that is supportive of productive disagreement. And also this book, Curious, I think it's really fantastic guide to the phenomenon. And don't forget, born liars back in the day. Thanks so much, Ian, for joining me. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.